Well, good afternoon and welcome. I'm Robert Wethno, the director of the Center for the Study of Religion, which is the sponsor of today's lecture. Thank you for being here. Those of you in the back, is the sound okay or, yeah? Okay, great. Well, I especially want to welcome the uh, members of our advisory council uh, who are here this afternoon. Uh, welcome to all of you. Thank you for being here. Uh, they will be meeting uh, with us throughout the day tomorrow. People sometimes ask us what the difference is between a department and a center. Well, departments promote interaction among specialists, and as a chair of a department, the sociology department, I'm a big fan of that kind of interaction, but it's also confining. Imagine how interesting it would be if some different conversations happened. For instance, a conversation between a neuroscientist who knows a lot about the brain and a philosopher of religion who knows a lot about meditation. Or a conversation between an archaeologist working with fragile religious relics and a physicist who's an expert in theories of robustness and uncertainty or a specialist in Enlightenment literature and a historian who knows a lot about religion during that period, or a businessman involved in international religious humanitarian efforts and a conversation with a scholar who knows a lot about transnational Christianity in the fourth century, or a historian working on religion during the civil rights movement and a political scientist who knows a lot about election data, or a musicologist and a specialist in Syriac texts, or a sociologist studying Muslim immigrants in France, and a priest working with Latino immigrants in San Antonio. And what if I told you that all of those conversations had actually happened all within the last two months? Well, that's what centers make possible. And those are some of the things that the Center for the Study of Religion has been doing here at Princeton. Uh, there is information on the back table uh, if you're interested in uh, uh, some of the upcoming events and uh, just learning more about the center. Well, there are also scholars who, in their own work, bridge disciplines uh, very effectively. Scholars who understand, for instance, theology and war and moral philosophy and religion. Our speaker this afternoon is one such person, and to introduce him, another scholar whose work is imaginative and specialized and also broadly interdisciplinary, the chair of Princeton's religion department, Professor Lee Schmidt. Lee? I'm delighted to have the opportunity this afternoon to introduce Harry S. Stout, Jonathan Edwards Professor of American Religious History at Yale University. Currently the chair of the Department of Religious Studies at Yale, he also holds appointments in history, American studies, and the Divinity School. A multi-hat trick worthy of his illustrious predecessor at Yale, Sidney Alstrom. Professor Stout is the author of a number of formative books in the broad domain of American religious history, including, most recently, 
upon the altar of the nation, a moral history of the Civil War published by Viking in 2006. His first book, The New England Soul, Preaching and Religious Culture in Colonial New England, appeared from Oxford University Press in 1986 and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in history. Five years later, Erdman's published his, his much-heralded biography of evangelist George Whitfield, the divine dramatist, which won the Critics' Award for History in 1991. Professor Stout has also been extremely productive as an editor, including co-editing such volumes as the Dictionary of Christianity in America, Benjamin Franklin, Jonathan Edwards, and the Representation of American Culture, Readings in American Religious History, Jonathan Edwards at 300, Religion in the American Civil War, and New Directions in American Religious History, the last a benchmark state-of-the-field collection. With his Yale colleague John Butler, he has also been orchestrating a 17-volume history of the impact of religion on American culture, a series designed especially for secondary education and the public schools. That series itself has clearly been a monumental undertaking. But no doubt the most prominent monument of all has been the Yale edition of the works of Jonathan Edwards, a half-century enterprise or mission for which Professor Stout serves as general editor and which published volumes 24 and 25 last year. Finally, I think it is fitting to mention that in 2003, Professor Stout was awarded the Robert Cherry Award for Great Teaching, one indication that, in addition to being a distinguished scholar, he is also a superb lecturer. We are doubly glad, then, to have him here as part of the Princeton Lectures in Religion and History, and to be able to hear him speak from his most recently published work with a lecture entitled, Baptized in Blood, More Reflections on the American Civil War. Professor Stout. Uh, thank you very much for that overly generous introduction, Lee. I, I, I was glad to hear that my Whitfield biography was published in 1992 because that reminds me when I visited your class in New Jersey uh, in 1991, I, I think, when I, which was the first time I really had an opportunity to meet you. And uh, it's a little daunting how long, many years it's gone by since then, but uh, nevertheless, it was a memorable event. Uh, it, it's been uh, several years since I've been here. I think uh, it's been maybe eight years since I've, I've been here to speak. Um, when I spoke here eight years ago, I spoke on uh, the subject of religion and the Civil War, a project that uh, I assumed I would finish in a year or so. Uh, well, it's eight years later, uh, and as a matter of fact, the project took seven years longer uh, than I thought. I actually think I began thinking about it in 1992. So, you know, some people like Bob Wuth now, they come out with a book every other year, maybe once a year. Some people like Stat, it takes them 15 years. So there you have it. That's the nature of the field that we're in. Uh, I do want to talk about uh, religion and morality in the Civil War today, and it's a two-part lecture. Uh, the first part is going to look at moral aspects uh, of, of the Civil War, and I'm going to be looking at the Civil War itself, 
uh, with particular attention to the, to, the, to the question or to the category of conduct, just conduct in the war, and I'll say more about that. Uh, and then I want to talk about the religious legacy of the Civil War, uh, that is to say, what happens in the aftermath. So a uh, two-part lecture, uh, morality and religion, uh, and then we'll be good to go. Uh, for those of you who are Civil War buffs, uh, you don't need to be reminded of the lethality uh, and, the, and the, uh, the destruction of the Civil War, but for those of you who are, are new to the subject, I'll just uh, begin with a few statistics to give you a sense of what we're dealing with in the Civil War. Estimates uh, are hard to come by. It's an inexact science. But uh, Civil War historian E.B. Long estimates that total enlistments of federal forces numbered about 2.8 million. Uh, included in this 2.8 million are about 190,000 African Americans uh, in a population, northern population, of about 18 million. Um, Confederate forces numbered about 1.5 million in a white population of 6.5 million. And in addition, there were slightly less than 4 million slaves. Of these soldiers, 623,026 died, and 471,427 were wounded for a total casualty count of about 1.94 million. These casualty totals combined in a total population of only 30 million, almost equal losses from all other American wars combined. If translated into an equal proportion of the current U.S. population, the casualty rates would total 10 million American soldiers and countless civilians in terms of the impact on, on, on this relative impact on the society. Uh, from another perspective, down on the ground, in three days of fighting at Gettysburg, uh, 60,000 casualties uh, didn't make it to another battle. <clears throat> you know, the, the totals are, are, are truly staggering. Uh, and we can say that in terms of the kill ratios, that the Civil War was America's most appalling act of human destruction. And it's to some of the moral dimensions of that appalling act of human destruction uh, that I want to direct your attention today. So given these grim statistics, how do we render moral judgments about the Civil War? Well, there's various perspectives that you can take. But for me, uh, the per per approach that I took was to employ just war theory. Ten years ago, uh, well, no, no, 15 years ago now when I began, this term might not have meant much to many of you in here, but today it's all around us in our war. We're asking, are preemptive wars just? Are wars of occupation as distinct from wars of liberation just? Is the conduct of our armies just? Is the treatment of prisoners of war just? Whether you know it or not, these ethical questions are lodged in millennia of ethical thinking on just war. It goes all the way back at least to the 4th century theologian St. Augustine. You can carry it up to the 13th century theologian Thomas Aquinas, uh, who may have had the most to say on the subject. And then it goes through the secular enlightenment in amazingly uh, uniform categories. They don't change much. One of the few areas when, where, when you move from theology to a secular enlightenment uh, the, the arguments remain pretty stable, and they continue all the way into the 20th century, the Hague Convention, uh, and uh, today the Geneva Convention. All of these are concerned with doing right in the bloody business of war. Granted that all wars are evil. Wars are killing. Wars are lethal. The question remains, is there any moral framework for judging them as just or unjust? And what are the consequences? 
of just and unjust wars. Just war theorists from Augustine to Geneva say, yes, there are standards that warring armies can be held to. And when these standards are aborted, when they're abused, the culprits can be tried for something called war crimes because they've transgressed the laws of just war. Now, whether one is dealing with contemporary wars in Iraq or Afghanistan or older wars, like the Civil War, two sets of principles are at the heart of just war theory. This is going to be a, you know, a mini-primer here. The first set of principles offers guidelines for when a war might justly be declared. The Latin phrase for this is jus ad bellum. And this is not going to be a central concern of mine in the lecture today, and I'll only say that in short, only defensive wars are deemed just. Wars of occupation, wars of imperialism are never just. The second set of principles offers, and the one I'm primarily concerned with today, offers guidelines for how a war might justly be conducted once it's declared, the Latin tag being used in bello. When and how. For purposes of this lecture, I will focus our attention on the conduct of war, and from there we will move to part two, its religious legacy. And first, just conduct in fighting a war, the how question. Whether or not a nation is deemed just in the actual fighting of a war is governed by, well, it's governed by a lot, but there were two principles that were especially important to me in researching and writing this book, and they go by the names of proportionality and discrimination. The principle of proportionality uh, requires that goals be proportional to the means employed. Granted that all soldiers at some level give up their right to life by enlisting in armed forces. And that's sobering. You need to think about that. They don't have the guarantees of the Constitution. They're under a separate law code. And at some level, they give up their right to life. Granted this, however, even so, principles of proportionality still invoke limits to the carnage. If 15,000 Marines were to be killed in an assault on Fallujah, we would say that the losses were disproportional to the importance of the attack. But sadly, this level of carnage happened routinely in the Civil War, and hardly anyone asked hard questions. Let me give you just two examples that illustrate what I take to be disproportional, hence unjust, losses. First, from the North in the spring of 1864. Throughout April and May, General Grant's Army of the Potomac and General Lee's Army of Northern Virginia had been trading hammer blows outside of Richmond. The two had been through four weeks of brutal frontal assaults in which casualties on both sides reached an astounding 70,000, almost 20,000 per week. Soldiers and their commanders were exhibiting unmistakable signs of shell shock, uh, what we today would be, call um, post-traumatic stress syndrome. By June 3rd, the two armies faced each other yet again in an area of open pines and deep ravines called Cold Harbor, Virginia. Mindless of casualties and in the mistaken belief that Lee's lines were spread too thin, Grant ordered yet another series of frontal assaults intended to break through Lee's soft underbelly, roll up his army, and march on the gates of Richmond. At 4.30, the tragically brief assault began. In lockstep madness, each advancing Union Corps was unfollowed by Lee's cannon and musket fire on the flanks, while simultaneously receiving direct fire in front. Artillery batteries worked their Napoleons furiously, with double charges of canister about the size of golf balls, turning the assault troops into a bloody mass of writhing humanity. 
In little over an hour, three assaulting federal corps were repulsed, with staggering losses that totaled 7,000, a rate of roughly 116 men per minute. In surveying the carnage, Lee's horrified General Evander Law would write of the battle, quote, it was not war, but murder. In turning to the south, an equally tragic wastage of human life occurred at the Battle of Gettysburg, which I just mentioned, when on the third day of the contest, uh, what a euphemism for a battle, when on the third day of fighting, Confederate General George Pickett ordered a frontal charge that was virtually suicidal. 7,000 Virginia soldiers died marching directly into federal artillery fire. With caps over eyes and heads bowed down, in one observer's words, as if meeting a hailstorm. Later, Pickett cried out, where, oh, where is my army? So the moral critic asks of Grant and Lee, where was your sense of proportion? Today, this would be clearly unacceptable. What about then, and who was asking the hard questions? The second principle of just conduct, and most central to my analysis, is the principle of discrimination. This addresses the question of who should be considered legitimate targets of war. Non-combatants are deemed to stand outside the field of war proper. Thus, it is unjust to attack them. Just war theory unanimously upholds the protection of civilians. No prudential weighing of costs and benefits is acceptable in deciding whether or not to target civilians or take them hostage. It is always wrong. Of course, warfare sometimes unavoidably involves civilians who get caught up in the crossfire. Today, we use the term collateral damage to describe these tragic situations. Medieval just war theorists addressed the topic of collateral damage in terms of the double effect. The doctrine of double effect justifies killing civilians in war only if their deaths are not intended but accidental. So, for example, targeting an undefended city is not permissible, but targeting a military establishment in the middle of a a city is. The target is the military unit and not the civilians inadvertently caught up in the struggle. These categories, you know, I'd like to bring all kinds of lessons. Every week the press has uh, uh, illustrations of them. This from... um, Sunday's Deseret Morning News. I was in Salt Lake City uh, last weekend, and they found a document that uh, during the Korean War basically ordered American soldiers to shoot refugees uh, who were not under arms, uh, and it was an order that was hidden uh, by the Pentagon and only recently discovered. Uh, It involved the uh, shootings uh, of hundreds, mostly women and children, trying to flee uh, from from the war itself. The ambassador uh, uh, from the United States realized that there was a problem with this, uh, and he did caution Dean Rusk that these shootings might cause, quote, repercussions in the United States because deliberately attacking noncombatants is a war crime. This past summer, I think we saw issues of proportionality and discrimination in the Israeli-Lebanon war. People were complaining that Israel's response was disproportional, One kidnapped soldier, and now you're invading Lebanon. Israeli defenders responded, the response of the Hezbollah is indiscriminate. They're not aiming for soldiers. They're not aiming at armies. They are deliberately targeting civilians. Proportionality, discrimination. In examining issues of discrimination, I encountered instances of unjust conduct as egregious as issues of proportionality on the battlefield. 
Let me give you one example of discrimination drawn from General William Tecumseh Sherman's southern campaign through Georgia and the Carolinas in 1864 and 65. This example was brought to my attention by, by a Yale senior writing a senior thesis on his hometown outside of Atlanta where he discovered the story I'm about to recount. I, it doesn't really appear in any of the, um, any of the surveys. As Sherman marched toward Atlanta in early July 1864, his mighty army approached two mill sites located near the town of Rosewell, where the, the, the senior grew up, um, and were primarily for the purposes of spinning yarn. In his memoirs, Sherman later noted innocently, quote, I ordered General Kenner Garrard's division of cavalry up the Chattahoochee River 18 miles to secure possession of the factories at Rosewell. Contained within the Rosewell possession, though, was a frightful story, seldom told in the North or the South. In fact, Sherman took possession of not one but two small factory towns, Sweetwater and Rosewell. Both of these mill towns produced cotton yarn for Confederate uniforms and were operated almost exclusively by women serving in the place of the men who had been either conscripted into the army, killed, or on the run. As his army swooped in to destroy the mills, Sherman issued a remarkable order to a General Garrard, so stunning that Sherman had to repeat it. Quote, I repeat my orders that you arrest all people, male and female, connected with those factories, no matter what the clamor, and let them foot it under guard to Marietta, whence I will send them by cars to the north. <clears throat> Sherman closed the order with the observation, the poor women will make a howl. Let them take along their children and clothing, provided they have the means of hauling or you can spare them. We will retain them until they reach a country where they can live in peace and security. Later, in justifying his actions to General Halleck, Sherman remarked, quote, they were tainted with treason. I will send all the employees up to Indiana to get rid of them there. For Sherman, in fact, there were no neutrals. There were no innocents in the Confederacy, and what he did or did not do was his decision to make. He could deport civilians or ignore them. But either way, he deemed all white Southerners guilty traitors, no different than soldiers. There were no innocents, no not one. Sherman's orders were duly carried out. After the mills were destroyed, the female workers were arrested, charged with treason, and sentenced to be deported with their children to the north under federal guard. The Sweetwater town would never be rebuilt. And in fact, the women never made it north but wound up in a female military prison constructed just for them in Louisville, Kentucky. There they remained with their children until the end of the war. The question for us as moral historians is clear. Was Sherman's action just by Augustinian just war standards of discrimination of noncombatants? This seems to be a no-brainer for moral analysis and hard questions, but not for the participants. With Sweetwater, as with every other dimension of this bloody war, participants north and south refused to take a stand. When it became clear that the refugees or prisoners were not being moved to Indiana after all, but to Louisville prison, the columnist for the New York Tribune cited military necessity. That's the covering law. You know, you say basically we protect people unless military necessity dictates otherwise. Then we can do whatever we damn well please. But then went on to concede the brutality of it all. Quote, only think of it. 400 weeping and terrified Ellens, Susans, and Maggies transported in the springless and seatless army wagons, away from their lovers and brothers of the sunny south, 
and offer the offense of weaving tent cloth and spinning stocking yarn. However, I leave the whole business to be adjudged according to its merits by your readers. All understood the severity of the measure, but none wanted to make judgments. At the same time that the Civil War escalated from a limited war into a total war in which civilians and their property were deliberately targeted by northern and southern commanders and approved at the highest levels of command, starting with Jefferson Davis and Abraham Lincoln, the moral justification changed in the North from a limited war for union to a moral crusade for freedom and abolition. This move represented the moral crux of the war and our moral dilemma. How do I resolve it? I begin by acknowledging that unlike secession, slavery is not morally ambiguous. At first a background topic as the initially unacknowledged cause of the war, slavery would grow ever more powerful in its foreground role throughout the war. With the Emancipation Proclamation to go into effect January 1st, 1863, it would represent Lincoln's inner accelerator for mounting a total war on the Confederacy, soldier and civilian alike. And with abolition, it would provide an unambiguous moral triumph. The justness of abolition and the freedom of four million dictates that any moral history of slavery unconditionally conclude that the right side won, no matter what the casualties and sacrifices. Lincoln was right when he said in his second inaugural that if God willed that the war continue until all the wealth piled by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with a lash shall be paid by another drawn with a sword, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. But this lecture is not a moral history of slavery. It's a moral history of a war where questions of proportionality and discrimination continue to remain in play. In any moral history of slavery, Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation would be unquestionably right and good. But in a moral history of the war, the Emancipation Proclamation becomes more problematic if it was employed by Lincoln and Northern Republicans generally, as I argued it was, as a lever, this was Lincoln's term, for a total war on the Confederacy that deliberately targeted civilian farms, cities, and in thousands and thousands of instances, civilian lives. I find it very interesting that no, you know, there's been a book on the Civil War written every day since Appomattox, and no one has explored in any systematic fashion the question of civilian casualties. They don't want to face it. It's too unpleasant. You can do it with historical demography. You can do it with uh, vital statistics to find out who's surviving and who's coming out of these and who isn't in the battle zones, in the areas where the bat intense battles are being fought. It hasn't been done. In a moral history of the Civil War, it is not enough merely to say that the end of human bondage in the United States was worth a million white lives, true as that may be. The separate question of war remains. Was it just? Here it is possible, and I believe reasonable, to conclude that the right side won in spite of itself. Instead of a just war dictated by prudent considerations of proportionality and protection of non-combatants, I argue that in too many instances, both sides descended into moral misconduct. The examples I provided in this paper with regard to issues of proportionality, Cold Harbor, Gettysburg, and discrimination, Stillwater Factory Town, are sadly not the egregious exceptions that prove the rule of a war fought justly. 
They became the norm. Sherman in the Carolinas and Union General Philip Sheridan in the Shenandoah Valley tore up civilian properties with no enemy army in sight simply to break the will of the South, especially the women of the South. In like manner, Confederate soldiers destroyed civilian property wherever they could. The, the, the carnage would have been just as great if they had the opportunity. Uh, this is not unique to one side or the other. Uh, one example of their intentions and, and what, what would have happened if the, if the possibilities were there occurred in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, 1864. Uh, earlier in 1863, uh, General Lee had marched through Chambersburg on his way to, to uh, Gettysburg and insisted uh, that the, the, the civilian property be left alone. Uh, a year later, Confederate General Jubal Early has different ideas. Uh, he's upset at the northern conduct in the war, so he enters the city of uh, Chambersburg uh, with his legions. He demands a million-dollar payment in cash that couldn't possibly be raised, uh, supposedly in payback for the uh, destruction of parts of the Virginia Military Institute. He tells the town, if you don't come up with the money, I'm going to burn it. Uh, they don't believe him. Uh, they know it's hopeless to get the money. And then Early proceeds to do exactly what he says. He torches an undefended town. Uh, something like 250 buildings go up in flames. Uh, only two survive. Uh, one was a Masonic Lodge because Jewel Early was a Mason. Uh, to take another example from the Confederacy, at the, at the Battle at Fort Pillow, Confederate soldiers refused to accept the surrender of black northern soldiers, murdering them instead. For all of these grim assaults on innocents and prisoners of war, no commander was ever held to account, nor did many moral critics on either side speak out. How could this moral blindness to the rules of war have happened? Sadly, Christian denominations in the North and South have a lot to answer for. Lying behind the killing fields of battle were equally savage killing fields of ideas waged on both sides. The United States was first and foremost an idea built on a foundation of ideology and theology. So when America was put to its ultimate internal test, it would require not only a war of troops and armaments, the stuff of geopolitics, but also a war of ideas. This war would require each side, especially the South, to establish a legitimate identity as a moral nation. It would also demand a moral campaign to establish the justness of a resort to arms. Abstract political arguments, constitutional arguments would not suffice. They would have to be augmented by moral and spiritual arguments that could steal millions of young American men to the bloody business of killing one another. Whenever I talk in my, in, in my undergraduate classes about the Civil War, or for that matter, the Revolution, uh, I often begin with a simple question just to focus their attention on what we're talking about here. Uh, and, and the question is this. What are you, what are each one of you, willing to pick up a gun and kill someone for? Don't answer it. Don't raise your hands. But answer it to yourself. What are you willing to pick up a gun and kill someone for, another human being? What would it take to get millions of young, primarily evangelical young men to kill one another by the hundreds of thousands in the Civil War? Above all, it is crucial to understand how both sides needed to enlist God in their cause as both justifier and absolute guarantor of their deliverance. 
Here the voices of clergymen in thousands of churches, north and south, would become especially meaningful as either critics or cheerleaders of the war's conduct. What did I find in my research over all those years of pouring through sermons, religious newspapers, letters, chaplains' reports on both sides? I found that tragically, the clergy, no less than everyone else, were virtually cheerleaders all. The voices of clergymen on both sides of the struggle are especially important for my case and for my book and for this paper because they were the sources where moral arguments should have prevailed. One more easily forgives generals, journalists, and soldiers for their moral silence. But clergy, especially the majority Protestant clergy, had traditionally opposed reflexive patriotic rhetoric from the pulpit. They supposedly answered to a higher authority. True, I do include in my book rare critical clerical voices as evidence that they could have established a prophetic distance from their side. But they are precious few, and for one simple reason, nationalism. More typical were the clerical drumbeaters for war no matter what the proportion or lack of discrimination. To cite just one characteristic example of hyperpatriotism, in 1863, Stonewall Jackson's widely respected Presbyterian chaplain and for a time his aide-de-camp, Robert Dabney, took the occasion of a funeral sermon for a fallen soldier to urge his young hearers to be Christ-like and fighting to the end. Let me take a, a, just a short quote from this sermon. <clears throat> Let me exhort the young men of this community to be followers of him, that is, the, 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 the killed soldier, as he also was of Jesus Christ. And especially would I now commend by his example the sacred and religious duty of defending the cause for which he died. Surely his very blood should cry out again from the ground if we permitted the soil which drank the precious libation to be polluted with a despot's boot. Before God, I take you to witness this day that its blood seals upon you the obligation to fill their places in your country's host and play the men for your people and the cities of your God to complete the vindication of their rights. What are you going to think if you're a young man in this congregation listening to a revered Presbyterian pastor, theologian, chaplain? What's your response going to be? With rhetoric like this, one can understand Civil War historian James McPherson's claim that religion was responsible for extending the war into its last and bloodiest year. Talk of war certainly bristled from the pages of the secular press and civic assemblies, and statesmen, clergy, and intellectuals raged against the unjust conduct of the enemy. They poisoned our wells, they murdered innocents, they murdered women and children. Yet few turned the mirror on themselves, looked at themselves in their reflection and say, what about our conduct? Do we need to be asking questions? Do we need to address the question of what constitutes a just war? Questions, by the way, that are being raised all the time right now. You get a sense of how surprised I was by the silence. Wherever you are, on, wherever you are on Iraq right now, the, the issues are being raised. You know, is it just? Uh, are we treating civilians properly? All, all of these things. Why the silence? I can only conclude that the clergy had a disproportionate influence at that point in time, far greater than they do today, and they were, for the most part, cheerleaders on both sides. In this avoidance and unpreparedness appears an important clue to the savage ferocity of fighting that would follow on both sides. 
As well, I think, we discern important clues into the evolving meaning of America and who we Americans are as a nation. Okay. Enough of the carnage. I've been told that word appears far too many times in my book. I'm turning now from the question of moral conduct to religious legacy. With all the millions of Americans killing hundreds of thousands of Americans, did anything besides abolition change by war's end? I answer yes. While few judged or questioned the recourse to total war, many saw in the unprecedented destruction of lives and property something mystical taking place, what we today might call the birthing of a fully functioning, truly national American civil religion. It was a meaning difficult for anyone to articulate at the time. Yet some, including soldiers, clergy, and most notably Abraham Lincoln, began to posit a moral high ground in the creation of a powerful national or civil religion. As the Civil War progressed onto increasingly eroded moral ground, something transformative simultaneously took place that would render the war the defining phenomenon in American history. Patriotism itself became sacralized to the point that it enjoyed co-equal or even superior status to conventional denominational faiths. Ever since Robert Bella's seminal essay on civil religion, he was your uh, advisor, wasn't he, Bob? Uh, ever since that seminal essay, maybe one of the two or three most uh, influential essays written in Sociology of Religion, published in 1967, American scholars awakened to a religion of American patriotism that existed alongside of traditional religious faiths. The late uh, historian of religion, Roland Sherrill, defines civil religion this way, and I quote, American civil religion is a form of devotion, outlook, and commitment that deeply and widely binds the citizens of the nation together with ideas they possess and express about the sacred nature, the sacred ideals, the sacred character, and sacred meanings of their country. Though lacking transcendent revelations akin to the Abrahamic faith, the religion of a sacralized patriotism enjoys a complete repository of sacred myths and rituals. These rites and rituals of civil religion are discovered less in the laws of the nation or in the Constitution than in more informal folkways and traditions. These include a myriad of sacred monuments, chief among them the Mall in Washington, D.C., where I was three or four weeks ago and was struck again uh, at the power of, the, uh, of, of these monuments, and in particular, uh, the Lincoln Memorial, bracketed by the, tr <clears throat> by the transforming phrases of two of America's sacred scriptures, the Gettysburg Address and the Second Inaugural, the other two being the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Those are the sacred texts. Key places evoke religious significance for many American tourists and patriots. Bunker Hill and Concord, Independence Hall, the Alamo, Gettysburg, the Statue of Liberty, all elicit reverential awe. The American flag stands as America's totem. School children routinely pledge their allegiance, what? To the flag and the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, inserted by Eisenhower, on a daily basis. Until recently, this pledge would be accompanied by prayers asking for God's blessing on his American people. Soldiers killed in battle are buried in flags. America at war is a nation festooned with flags in 2007 no less than 1861. It's impossible to see anyone 
uh, in the State Department uh, or in government without a minimum of six American flags behind them. If you're the president, I don't know, maybe it's 12 uh, that you need, along with a couple in your lapels. Uh, it's absolutely amazing. American patriots reflexively invoke the stars and stripes or old glory as the object they are willing to kill and be killed for. Critics of America, home and abroad, who burn the flag are accused of desecration, literally a trampling on the divine. Of course, you know there was a recent attempt to have a constitutional amendment uh, banning the, the, the burning of American flags. The locus of American civil religion is not the church, the synagogue, or the mosque, though it's interesting that all, both uh, synagogues and churches raised flags for the first time in their sanctuaries during the Civil War. Before the Civil War, about the only place you'd see an American flag would be in the Merchant Marine to distinguish the nationality of the ships. All of that changes uh, after uh, Fort Sumter, just as it has all changed in this country after 9-11. The, the, the locus is not the church or the synagogue or the mosque. Rather, it is the state, which uses sacred symbols of the nation for its own purposes and perpetuation. And its own perpetuation can represent its highest ideal, to which everything and everyone will be sacrificed. It doesn't know when to quit, really, uh, in, in those terms. The appeal proves so powerful and all-encompassing that some contemporary religious critics identify civil religion with idolatry. I think of the, the uh, late Will Herberg or Robert Jewett's The Captain America Complex. Positively, other scholars see in civil religion the social and cultural glue that binds a diverse people together and invests them with a collective sense of spiritual unity capable of withstanding internal disintegration. And here I think of the historian Sidney Mead and many and many of the biographies of Abraham Lincoln, who in the course of American civil religion becomes the Messiah of America's civil religion, uh, martyred on Good Friday. Yet in all of this literature, one yawning question remains unanswered. Given the existence of an American civil religion that everybody recognizes, how was it incarnated? How do we capture the transformation in the beginning? Surely the words and some of the symbols appeared in the revolution, but rhetoric alone cannot create a religion. For Puritans to speak of a city upon a hill and Thomas Jefferson to invoke inalienable rights does not suffice to create a national religious loyalty sufficiently powerful to claim the lives of its adherents. In 1860, on the eve of war, no coherent nation commanded the sacred allegiance of all Americans over and against their states and regions. For the citizenry to embrace the idea of a nation state, huge, 3,000 mile uh, continental expanse uh, that commands one's highest loyalty above state, above neighborhood, above locality. Canada's, what, 600 miles to the north of here? That doesn't command the loyalty. Los Angeles, 3,000 miles to the west, that commands the loyalty. For the citizenry to embrace the idea of a nation state that commanded one's highest loyalty and must have a messianic destiny would require a massive sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. This I discovered in the Civil War. It was routine, I've been told, that before the Civil War, Americans would routinely say that the United States are a republic. After the Civil War, they would routinely say the United States is a republic. Only as casualties rose to unimaginable levels did it dawn on some people that something mystically religious was taking place. 
a sort of massive sacrifice on the national altar. The Civil War taught Americans that they really were a union, and it absolutely required a baptism of blood to unveil transcendent dimensions of that union. As the war grew progressively more destructive, I discovered increasing contemporary references to Union and Confederate casualties as martyrs. By 1864, the language of martyrdom and sacrificial altars was instinctual and through sheer repetition formed a national consensus and literally incarnated a powerful new religion of patriotism. After rehearsing the lives of Albany's martyrs who died for their uh, who died for their nation, the Congregational Pastor Rufus Clark closed, quote, a republic for which such sacrifices have been made and upon whose altar such noble and precious lives have been laid must live, must triumph over all its foes and shine with new splendor in the ages yet to come. In all seriousness, one Confederate minister consoled grieving parents with the words that their son, quote, laid himself cheerfully upon the altar and gloried to be there. The language of altars and martyrs stands out as religious language. In the case of the Civil War, it is a religious language dedicated to political religion rather than to Christianity or Judaism. By the war's most devastating years in 1863 and 64, no Americans were said to be dying for their Christian faith, but plenty of martyrs were dying for their country. No Christian minister, north or south, could self-consciously invoke a civil religion as co-equal to or superior to Christianity or Judaism. Yet the language of martyrdom reveals how, at least subconsciously, this war was generating through sheer quantity of blood sacrifice a living and vibrant civil religion. By linking patriotism to Christianity and paying lip service to the superiority of the eternal over the temporal, ministers and people could embrace the new faith without fully acknowledging exactly what they were doing. The incarnation of a national American civil religion may finally have been the great legacy of the Civil War. How can we, a people of such diversity, who have more than adequately demonstrated our capacity to live at war, possibly come together in peace without some functioning civil religion? And how does any real religion come into being without the shedding of blood? Having said this, I would like to conclude by suggesting that some moral judgments need to be made judgments that most Americans have been reluctant to make. Tragically, America's civil religion would not include the very freedmen so many thousands died to liberate. And here, in the presence of ongoing racism, we come to the ultimate moral failure of the war south and north. Historian David Blight, in his widely acclaimed book, Race and Reunion, marks this as the central tragedy of the Civil War. Quote, the sectional reunion after so horrible a civil war was a political triumph by the late 19th century, as white northerners and southerners reconciled. But it could not have been achieved without the resubjugation of many of those people whom the war had freed from centuries of bondage. This is the tragedy lingering on the margins and infesting the heart of American history. In all of the vast literature on the Civil War, it is clear that we have preferred a violent, sentimental but glamorized and romantic civil war. Civil war histories have folk, military histories have focused on strategies and tactics and the sheer drama of battles in action. Political histories have focused, especially in the present, on slavery and emancipation, accounting the evil so complete and pervasive as to justify even murder. In this sense, Lincoln's war strategy of using emancipation to promote total war was and remains genius. That does not make it right. 
All too often, the moral calculus perfected in the Civil War has been applied to other American wars, often in cases involving nothing as noble as uh, abolition. Freedom becomes the, the, the magic word, the free pass. By condoning the logic of total war in the name of freedom and victory, Americans effectively guaranteed that other atrocities and other wars could likewise be excused in the name of military necessity and freedom. To cite just one example, shortly after the Civil War, Lincoln has passed from the scene. General Grant is now President Grant. The head of all the armies is Sherman. And the commander in the Western Theater, dealing with uh, the extermination of the Indian tribes, is Philip Sheridan. In a letter to Sherman in 1863, Philip Sheridan drew on their Civil War experiences as justification and defense for the Indian wars of extermination in the Western territories. And I quote from Sheridan. In taking the offensive, I have to select that season when I can catch the fiends. And if a village is attacked and women and children killed, the responsibility is not with the soldiers, but with the people whose crimes necessitated the attack. Moral logic perfected by Sherman and Sheridan. They did it to themselves. During the Civil War, did anyone hesitate to attack a village or town occupied by the enemy because women or children were within the limits? Did we cease to throw shells into Vicksburg or Atlanta because women and children were there? Understandably, Americans don't want to concede the wartime wrongs committed by the likes of Lincoln, Grant, Sherman, Sheridan, Lee, Forrest, Early, and Davis. Individual acts of immorality occur in all wars, but armies are hierarchies and responsibility ultimately resides at the top. The web of lies, suppression, and evasion that developed in the Civil War not only shock, but also bear witness to the power of war to corrupt, especially at the top. Predictably, as the war continued, the abuses grew ever greater. Nobody significant on either side was ever held to account, other than one commandant of a, a prisoner of war camp in the Confederacy. Privates may have been executed for rape, but no commanding officer was ever executed for creating the orders and culture in which rape, particularly of black women, could easily take place. No commanding officer that we know of ordered the death of prisoners of war. But by creating a war with no thought for prisons and prisoners of war, and by refusing all attempts at exchange and amelioration, both sides created the environment in which unimaginable suffering and death took place. In conclusion, why is it important to worry about the moral history of the Civil War? Why can't we just move on? It's important because we are its legates. And if we question nothing from that costly conflict, then we need question nothing in conflicts of the present and future. Issues of discrimination and proportionality recur in every war. The Civil War does not provide an especially encouraging model in this regard, especially if the crimes go largely unnoticed beneath the national urge to forgive, for, I mean, excuse me, to forget and move on. But as with the Holocaust, if we forget, we do so at great peril to our own humanity. Judging the Civil War is not, for me anyway, a brief for pacifism. Rather, it is an endorsement of the idea of a just war. There are no ideal wars. Peace is the only ideal, and every war, at some level, a perversion of it. In a less than ideal world, however, in which we sometimes labor under a moral imperative to war, we cannot afford to do less than demand a just war and a merciful outcome. Thank you.
think there's some time for questions. Yes. Well, um, yeah, it makes a difference, I think, on the home front. You, are you referring to today, the fact that we have no draft? You see, when there was a draft in the Civil War, everybody ha you know, had to get caught up in it. Nobody was unaffected, or hardly anyone was unaffected. If you have an all-volunteer army, uh, basically of professionals, which, which was the case in Europe for the longest time, which is the case today in this country. It's very possible to, to fight a war and, and not know a single person involved in it, caught up with it, and pretty much go about your business, go shopping uh, while the war goes on. So, yeah, it makes a big difference. I was, uh, you know, David picked me up today, and, and we wor walked across the common. And I, I had occasion to reflect on when, when I was uh, taking a, a course uh, right near there. It was uh, Arthur Link's. Hardest course I ever took uh, on, on progressivism. And uh, one day in 1970, um, after the Cambodian invasion, the whole quad was just filled with students. Uh, a radical intellectual named Gabriel Kokel uh, addressed the students. And it was not long after that that the ROTC building at Princeton was burned down. And it was not long after that that um, uh, we got sent home early. And uh, David said, you know, people remark that you don't see that kind of activism in, in uh, campuses today on students. I said, all you have to do is institute the draft and eliminate college deferments, and they'll be massed on the commons from coast to coast. Er Right. In Protestant America. Yeah, the Protestant, Catholic, and Jew were equal opportunity patriots for both sides. Uh, and there was a famous exchange between the Bishop of Charleston and uh, Archbishop Hughes in, in New York City where the bishop in Charleston said, what you're doing is wrong. Uh, all we want is to go our own way, and you're sending thousands of soldiers down, and, 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 it, and it's wrong. And, who's and furthermore, he said, a disproportionate number of Irish are dying uh, in the north, which was not true, but it was widely assumed to be true among Catholics in the south. And then Hughes said, you know, we're going to meet in heaven, but as far as here and now is concerned, you know, I want to see all of you rebels dead, defeated, and back in the Union. They didn't talk much after that. One of the things, I mean, I was thinking about the Sherman, and when I, I went back to look at some of the things about the burning of Atlanta, it struck me how sentimental he was about war is so horrible, you just got to end it quickly, get it over with quick, burn onto the conscience of the South, this will never, ever happen again. Right. And it was, a more, it was kind of a moral justification for non-discrimination. I yeah. Right. This is a guy that I put up free in my house for three years in New Haven. <laughs> this is how he repays me. 
Um, no, I th it's a very good question. It's a very good question. But, you know, I find it very instructive that Sherman's own generals were shocked. That they weren't thinking, yeah, yeah, th there's, a, there's a way in which we can uh, make some, some kind of uh, argument for imprisoning women and children and, and uh, sending them uh, away. Um, and, um, and, of course, the stories don't end there. I mean, the, the, the burning of Columbia, South Carolina is, is maybe the most notorious. There's nothing romantic or sentimental uh, about Sherman then. Uh, they, his favorite division was leading the way into Columbia. There were no Confederate soldiers in sight except for a couple of observers. The generals are observing, but they had no army uh, behind them. And... Um, you know, one very loyal uh, company uh, brigade uh, was going to go in, but they were outraced by another, which was the most infamous um, corps uh, in Sherman's army. And uh, wherever they went, they wrecked havoc. They're the ones that raced in. Sher Sherman never ordered them out. He never ordered a guard. And, and they proceeded to raise the city, uh, rape and pillage. Uh, and Sherman basically said, I shudder for the state of Columbia. They brought this on themselves. Yeah, Lee. I guess another way of uh, asking Eric's question here is uh, everyone's an equal opportunity patriot. Are some whose religious groups having to work harder to neglect ethical resources that they have? Probably the Quakers. Right. Well, they had the resources to think the way we wish they th did with the Mexican War, you know, which Lincoln uh, protested in the strongest terms uh, as being unjust uh, and unwarranted. So they had the vocabulary at their disposal. The most interesting ones were the Quakers, and the presumption is that the Quakers, you know, refused to participate uh, or condone the war, but that's not really true, because uh, except for a very, very small. Uh, uh, um, breakaway group of friends. Uh, for the most part, they supported the war because they defined it not as a civil war, but as a rebellion. So just like if 20 people walk down Main Street, Princeton, and start rioting, the police can put them down. So six and a half million uh, are rioters uh, occupying territory five times the size of the original colonies, and those rioters need to be put down. Okay, well, the first question, you'll have to tell me again. I have a short memory. Well, it seems like we're judging. Oh, anachronism. Yeah, we're taking 21st century categories and imposing them. Um, I don't think so. They were very familiar with these categories and, as a matter of fact, very insistent on observing them in the first year, year and a half of the war. Um, I, 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 I use the word the. Um, there, there are also high priests of American civil religion, and, and those are the graduates of West Point. 
uh, who commanded both sides in 55 of the 60 largest battles. And in the beginning, there was this West Point code that prevailed that said, you know, it was anything but timid or, or uh, innocent. But the idea was that armies confront each other savagely in, in frontal assaults on the battlefield, but leave the fighting on the battlefield. Uh, because that's just war. The greatest embodiment of that was probably the worst general, General McClellan, who refused to conduct a war uh, on southern civilians, who refused to liberate slaves, who refused to attack. Uh, and, uh, and he did so largely on moral grounds that were explicitly, you know, this, this is, uh, we're dealing with proportionality and discrimination with, with our brothers and sisters who we will hopefully be reunited with, uh, with slavery still in place. Um, and uh, so, th no, those questions were there, but they got over it. You know, by 1862, by 1863, certainly, it had just descended into a much more savage business. And the second question, what, where is civil religion today? I think that you're right. Um, Jim McPherson wrote a book for Cause and Comrades that I remember where he began it with um, uh, an anecdote of visiting Gettysburg with a commander in the Vietnam era and looking at, say, where, where Pickett made his charge, lost 7,000, virtually lost his whole brigade. Uh, and the general said, you know, this could have never happened in, in Vietnam. This could never happen today. And I, I think that that's right. And I think one of the main reasons for it is that we really have to take seriously the power of evangelical Protestantism uh, in, in this time. I mean, these are the intellectuals of their, of their community. These are the moral arbiters who virtually to a man, not entirely but, but close, uh, are, are pushing the troops on north and south, telling them that their reward is in heaven, telling them, uh, you know, it's almost as though you'll be rewarded in paradise, language that we're hearing on the other side of the conflict today uh, in the war in Iraq. And so, steeled with that knowledge, desperately afraid not to be seen as cowards, living and fighting in groups that whereby you were also neighbors. It was in the nature of these armies that they would be neighborhoods coming together as volunteers, nobody wanting to be... Um, judged a coward because they were going to have to go home and face those people, it creates a, a, an entirely different momentum that if there's no break on it, if the brake line is sheer, uh, there's, not going to be, there's no stopping it until there's no souls left to butcher on the altars of their country. That's a good question. Maybe in the, be maybe in, in the beginning. But, but first of all, you have to remember, yes, there is an urban north uh, that far um, outnumbers uh, an, an urban south. But the vast majority of northerners are still farmers uh, throughout the Midwest, throughout the, interior, the hinterlands. I mean, you're still the, the disproportionate number of population, both north and south, are involved in farming. Uh, 
with this additional industrial base uh, in, in the north. Um, it may, the interesting thing for me, actually, in looking at nor churches north and south is that because of the, the mounting defeats in the south, the churches become less and less um, committed to the cause as, as, they're, as they're beaten down, as their churches are being destroyed, as they're losing their money, as they're losing their livelihoods, as their ministers are being conscripted to serve as, as chaplains. And they're losing battles. And the very interesting thing that happens is that religious inspiration emerges from the strangest source, the Confederate Army. There's a quote that I found very compelling, that in the beginning of the war, the churches were praying for the soldiers and the armies. With all of the devastations uh, enacted on them uh, in the overland campaigns of Sherman and Sheridan and, and, and others, the, the observer said, now it's the armies who are praying for the churches. And it's going to be out of these armies that a post-war evangelicalism is going to emerge as the dominant uh, religious tradition. Before the Civil War, evangelicals were kind of seen as effeminate. They have these strange conversion experiences, and it's too womanly, they said. After the Civil War, the great revivalists are coming in with one limb, gnarled Civil War veterans preaching revival, preaching conversion, and it's on their shoulders, really, that you see the rise of an evangelical um, south. Yeah. I think it's a great question. I think there were at least three civil religions. Like there was a northern civil religion, a white confederate civil religion, and an African-American civil religion. The, the white confederate and the African-American shared in common that they were chosen but beaten. Uh, they perceived themselves uh, as, as the, 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 the ch children of God, and so that the conclusion is that we're suffering because God chooses losers as well as winners, whereas the North could pretty much gloat. Uh, you do find uh, in the South, uh, for, a long, for a time in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, in the White South, what histor historians call the religion of the lost cause, where, uh, where ex-Confederates and, and, and especially the women who were most outraged uh, by Sherman and Sheridan coming through, destroying everything with no defenders in sight, uh, they're the ones who are going to develop it most powerfully that insists on preserving the memory and the nobility, the flag, uh, the cause, even in the midst of, of defeat. What, and you can still see remnants of it today in questions of, of the Confederate flag on state buildings and whatnot. But in a fairly short period of time, they find their way back into the Union. Uh, and they get caught up in, in, in the so-called New South which decides we're going to industrialize. Atlanta becomes their template. Atlanta, the architecture, everything else as they rebuilt the burned city is all northern. Uh, and they really want to integrate themselves into northern banks, into northern railroads, into to the northern economies. 
and eventually into politics and eventually into war. By the time of the Spanish-American War, you, be, you, you see disproportionate Southern enlistments fighting for America uh, in the Spanish-American War, and then it reaches its uh, crescendo, uh, not crescendo, but its, its clear legitimation, their legitimation as Americans as well as Southerners with the election of who? Woodrow Wilson, uh, near and dear to all of your hearts. And uh, at, at that point, there is a coming together uh, of white North and white South under the common banner of America. Uh, who's left out? African Americans are left out. The very people that it was supposedly fought for are the ones who are excluded as the price of reconciliation. Uh, this is the point of, of uh, David Blight's book. So, for example, by the 1870s, early 80s, we begin to see for the first time reunions of Nor Confederate and, and Northern soldiers coming to battle locations uh, and coming together as, as warriors, uh, as, as veterans. The women were having no part of it. They were not forgiving, especially the ones caught up in the war zones. Um, the African-American soldiers and veterans weren't invited. 190,000 African-American soldiers fighting, bleeding, and dying were not invited to the reunions because they would wreck it. Uh, and the white South wouldn't come. So that was the price of reintegrating uh, the white South into the Union and into this larger American civil religion. Uh, yeah. There was certainly, I, I mean, I found instances of just war reflection in the revolution. Certainly, I mean, the revolution was America's first civil war. Maybe 40% of Americans were loyalists uh, who thought that it was a sin to, uh, to resist Great Britain. And so, you know, they're saying this is unjust, and they're marshalling the arguments. War of 1812, uh, Mexican War, the same thing. What I found interesting about religion before the Civil War, and in particular Protestant, was that it was really aligned against the government. It was really, in their mind, speaking truth to power. So if slavery is the law of the land, we're going to confront government uh, with anti-slavery. If we're going to war in Mexico purely for uh, imperial reach, we're going to protest this in the strongest terms. We're going to go to, uh, we're, we're, we're going to, go to Concord and refuse to pay our taxes. It's much more of a, a confrontational prophetic stance. And I was amazed in the Civil War to see that distance break down remarkably quickly. One more question? Well, we have two. Can we take two? I don't want to say yes to one and no to the other. Yeah. Or developing piety to, to 
the yeah. cheerleaders, or was there differences between the gender roles of, of the women in North and South? Um, I think that there was, and uh, a scholar named Drew Faust has written a, a very good book uh, on this subject. Northern women like northern men who were not combatants. By the way, there are about 150 women who, who hid their gender and donned uniforms and fought uh, for the Union and for the Confederacy, but not many in the, in the grand scheme of things. They were far enough removed that the kind of the intensity didn't always hit home unless their soldiers in their hometowns were involved at Shiloh or uh, some major battle and, and suffered heavy casualties. The, the women in the South felt the hard edge of war much more directly. Um, Drew Faust in her books makes the point that eventually their will was broken in many places where they just say to their soldiers, I want you to come home. Uh, I can't control the slaves. They're running away on me. I can't control our own children. Johnny doesn't listen to me. He has to have his father here. Won't you come home? Uh, but then there's other scholarship uh, on, on women in the Confederacy that says, yeah, until you see the women in the war zones, who were the ones, the primary victims of these overland campaigns of intimidation uh, waged and launched by particularly Sherman and Sheridan. So there is a difference, I think, in that regard. Same rationale Jefferson Davis used. Yeah, so I'm wondering uh, if the Civil War had been more humane, at least in terms of the Northern response, uh, if the Union would not have been preserved. And we have the USA, the CSA, the WSA, and the nation of Texas with George Bush. <laughs> well, those, that, you know. I, I, it comes up in every, you don't talk about the Civil War without getting a question where the word if appears. Uh, and that's the counterfactual. What if uh, something different happened? And that's a possibility. I mean, where does the idea originate that the United States of America can be the only nation state on the continent? Why can't there be three or four? I mean, it, it, the, it seems to me the only way you can come around to that is if you really believe it's sacred. If you really believe that the Union has a providential destiny that cannot be broken without great consequences for the future of the world and humankind, uh, that that argument be can become especially compelling. Uh, another contingency question that I find very disturbed, counterfactual, that I find very disturbing, what if Lincoln had gotten a better general than McClellan? What if Grant had been his first general? Exacts the, uh, the anaconda strategy, uh, that, that was put in place, uh, does it exactly, marches on the gates of Richmond in a year and a half, the Civil War would have been over, the Union would have been preserved, and slavery would still be intact. Thank you very much.
Thank you.